Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks with GS. I'm Stephanie Cohen. I'm the firm's chief strategy officer. And this is Ellen Ochoa, which obviously needs no (laughs) introduction. She was the 11th director of NASA's Johnson Space Center. And in 1993, she became the first Hispanic woman in space. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here. So my guess is if I ask people in the audience how many people looked up at the sky and said... I want to be an astronaut one day. (laughs) Uh, When did you decide that you wanted to be an astronaut? So probably later than most astronauts. Um, Of course, I grew up um, while the Apollo program was going on, and and really everybody in the country was watching that. But at that time, there were no women astronauts. And so, you know, nobody ever went around asking, do you want to be an astronaut when you grow up? They they just didn't ask girls that. And it never occurred to me that was something I could could go do. And then um, I went off to graduate school after having a couple summer jobs um, where I had a chance to do research, and so I decided I wanted to get into into research. And it was there at Stanford, the first year I was there, that the space shuttle flew for the first time. So that was a big deal for a number of reasons. Um, It was a very different kind of spacecraft than had ever flown before, and it it was going to do different things. It was going to be used for a lot of different kinds of science research, for example. And it could hold a lot more people than a capsule. And because of that, um, I guess three years before it flew the first time, NASA had selected the first group of astronauts that was going to train specifically for the shuttle. That was the first group that included women and the first group that included minority astronauts. So I was about halfway through my undergrad at that point. So these were all big changes going on. Um, and uh, so it was really in graduate school after that all happened. Two years later, after the first shuttle flight, Sally Ride flew, another, another big milestone, first uh, American women in space. And she and I had some things in common in that she had a physics degree and, and I had a physics degree. She had come from Stanford. I was at Stanford. And, and that all made it seem a lot more, you know, possible. Or, you know, at least it gave me the idea that, well, this isn't something impossible. And I got uh, very interested in it at that point. So you're interested. You, you ultimately get to the point where you apply. I actually put my application in um, as soon as I got my PhD, because that was the first time I felt like I might actually be competitive. And so that was in 1985. And the first selection they did after that was in 87. And I got a chance to actually go and interview. So I didn't realize it until I got to Johnson Space Center. But that meant I'd already gotten from you know a few thousand applications down to 120 people. Uh, so it was very exciting. I, um, I you know got to talk to astronauts for the first time and really find out more about what the job was really like and um, get to tour around. Um, of course, most of the week was medical testing. Some of that wasn't as exciting. <laughs> but um, uh, I wasn't selected that year. But um, I was encouraged to keep my application active, uh, so, I, so I kept updating it. And I actually went to work for NASA at a research center. Um, and then three years later, they did another selection, and, and I was selected that time. And then the preparation leading up to the first mission. It was actually a lot like going to school, to be honest. You know, So you're studying, and you're 
um, sort of test, you, they're either testing you or you're testing yourself in terms of how much you're learning um, and preparing for that. And then after I'd been there about two years, may, uh, maybe a little bit less, I got assigned to my first mission. So we were a crew of five. And our job um, primarily was um, to study the problems of ozone hole and ozone depletion. And so it was really looking at atmospheric chemistry and physics with a suite of instruments that we had on board. Um, we also had a science satellite that one of my jobs was to use the robot arm to lift it up out of the payload bay and deploy it into orbit. And then a couple of days later, we came back um, and I used the arm to grab it and then put it back in the payload bay. It was studying the solar wind. And then we had a variety of um, secondary payloads on board with us. Um, and then as well as you train for all the different phases of flight, launch, landing, rendezvous with, this, with the satellite. Um, and a lot of it is, of course, um, training when something goes wrong. So you have to be prepared for you know, when things don't happen exactly the way that you want to do it. So once I got assigned on a crew, it was about a year where we trained together as a crew before we actually went to go fly. Throughout your career, you've had a bunch of firsts. First Hispanic woman in space, first Hispanic deputy director of the Johnson Space Center, first woman in Hispanic on the board of the Service of Corporation International. So a lot of firsts. Did you feel pressure by being the first? What, how did that make you feel? How did that influence what you were doing? You know, I would say early on in my career, maybe actually even when you think about school and graduate school, um, because there were so few women in engineering, not to even mention Hispanic women, but just women in general, um, it, you know, it's a little intimidating because you, you do feel like you stand out a lot and that everybody sort of knows who you are and kind of knows uh, how you do and you, you do have this sense of, you know, if I don't do well, it somehow reflects on all women or all Hispanics. I'm sure a lot of you can, can relate to that. Um, as I got further in my career, even though there were more firsts that I was doing, it, that actually lessened quite a bit. And I, I think it's partly just because, um, you know, once I got into the astronaut office, um, what people really cared about, what the other astronauts cared about, what the people on the ground cared about was, could I do my job? You know, was I going to be a good crew member? You know, could they count on me to use the robot arm to, to, to grasp the satellite and, and to learn the shuttle systems and to do whatever I needed to do to support the mission? And, and I was able to demonstrate that. And then, you know, I don't think people that I interacted with day in and day out, then you know they didn't think of me as the first this or that. They, okay, this is Ellen. This is what she can do, and and so then I spent you know 28 years at NASA and sort of in that environment where where people knew me. The conversation around women in STEM has evolved since since certainly you were you were in school. What progress have we made? What can we do to make more progress? Where do you think we're headed? So. You know, almost the whole time I've been at NASA, um, I've had the opportunity to um, talk with groups that were encouraging girls in particular, particularly middle school and high school age, to, to study math and science and engineering. And there's lots of good programs out there. And there's certainly progress that's been made, but I think not as much as I would have thought 25 years ago. You know, I would, if you'd asked me 25 years ago where we'd be today, I would have thought we, we would have many, many more women in engineering than, than we do. Now, it, it really depends on what field of engineering. Um, so for example, there are a lot of women in bioengineering. There's a lot of women in environmental engineering. 
Um, still not very many in the, the subjects that I took, like physics and electrical engineering and computer science. And so one of the things that, um, you know, I, as I told you, I didn't know very much about engineering, uh, you know, when I was going into college and um, or, or doing research. And of course, I, I kind of had this idea that you sort of do research in a vacuum, you know, and you're sort of alone in your lab. Um, and actually, that was the case for, for a few years anyway. <laughs> but, you know, when you get to NASA or a lot of other places where research is going on, what you realize, realize it's, it's a team sport. You know, you're, you're working with a team of people to try to accomplish things. And um, what you're working on, um, you know, has benefits to humanity. And a lot of engineering, of course, is solving problems, you know, here on Earth. And, um, you know, I think that's something that appeals to all people, but it, it certainly appeals to women to, you know, solve problems, um, to sort of satisfy that curiosity. And I think working in teams to achieve a goal really appeals to a lot of people, including a lot of women. But maybe when they're making choices earlier on, they don't realize that that's really what engineering is about. And so I think the more that we can emphasize those sort of qualities to engineering and, and engineers. Um, I hope that that encourages more more women to study those subjects. I agree. We, we, we make some of those same arguments yeah. around here. Yeah. Um, the commercial space industry, we read a lot in the press about the commercial space industry. Talk about how the commercial space industry works with, with mm -hmm. NASA and where you think the future is on commercial space travel. Yeah, so, you know, we're at a point where almost every industry is being disrupted in some way or another, right? And certainly that's true in space exploration and human space exploration. So, you know, up until maybe 10 or 11 years ago, um, human space exploration was really purely a, a government um, activity. Now, we always worked with industry because we, we don't manufacture you know, anything at NASA. So we always had companies like Boeing and Lockheed and Northrop Grumman that we worked with. But it was a model in which you know, we sort of did the design and drew up the original requirements. And then companies went and manufactured. And then we owned the vehicles and we operated the vehicles. Um, starting about 10 years ago or so, um, we realized, okay, there's getting to be this point where there are starting to be um, industries and companies that are interested in um, doing space activities, and they want to go off and do either do their own thing or they want to bring some innovation to this field. So at Johnson Space Center, we actually had the first contract with commercial companies, and it was with um, SpaceX and with Orbital ATK to develop a service to take cargo to the International Space Station and also, in SpaceX's case, actually bring cargo back. And, and mostly what we bring back is um, science, you know, uh, the results of science experiments that we're doing. Um, occasionally other equipment that we're um, refurbing to send back up. And the model was, was quite different where we tried to keep our requirements at a pretty high level and give the companies um, leeway in terms of how they would actually meet the requirements rather than you know, giving them very detailed specifications. And then in the end, assuming that they could demonstrate the capability, 
then we would put out contracts to actually, you know, service contracts where we just contract them to take up, you know, different kinds of hardware and bring things back. And they own the vehicles and they were responsible for operating those vehicles. So that's worked quite well in the cargo world. And then a few years ago, um, we also put out contracts for um, companies to take our crew members to and from the International Space Station. Now, taking humans um, is, is qu actually quite different. I mean, in some ways, you would think it's the same. Um, but the, the reliability factor is really what you um, have to, to think about when you're taking people. So we're in the midst of that development right now. Um, just like with any space development I've ever been involved in, it takes longer than you initially think. So you talked about NASA, how they think about their goals, how they operate. Can you compare and contrast maybe NASA to some other countries, so to China or Russia or others around the world, how they're thinking about space and what their, their goals are and maybe the differences in how they operate? We do work directly with the Russian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, um, Japanese Space Agency, and Canadian Space Agency. And we've had a, a good, strong partnership with all of those for the last 25 years. You know, when you think about, um, first of all, we were building this space station um, to do a bunch of different kinds of research in space. And then when you think about building infrastructure around the moon or on the moon and eventually onto Mars, you know, we really do believe it's going to be an international collaboration as well as um, using commercial companies here. And um, I think one of the really nice things about that is, um, of course, over the last 25 years, in general, U.S.-Russia relationships have, you know, kind of ebbed and flowed. They've been very strong at some points. They've been a little bit um, sticky at other points. And, but through that whole 25 years, we've had a very strong partnership in space. And the idea was, uh, you know, this space station is all of ours, and we want to keep our astronauts and cosmonauts safe. We want to uh, make it productive. We want to make sure that each of our countries sees the benefit that we're getting from it. And so the only way we were going to be able to do that is, is to work together. And, uh, and that's what we've been able to do. And all of these space agencies are now working with NASA on our ideas for having some infrastructure in orbit around the moon, which is the next place that we, that we want to go. Um, we're building um, a spacecraft and a heavy lift rocket, and we expect that other space agencies will be um, contributing you know, a module where um, we can do some research, an airlock. Um, and then both countries as well as companies here in the U.S. are interested in developing, you know, initially a lander that would just maybe go from this um, gateway in orbit to the, to the moon and back. Um, and, of course, eventually we want to land humans on, again on the moon as well. But um, the U.S. has really been sort of the coordinating glue between all of these agencies, and I, I hope that's a role that will continue to play well into the future. So as you think about the future, it sounds like you think we're going to get to the moon again in our lifetime. Do you think we get there's human beings on Mars in our lifetime? I think if we decide that's what we want to do, we can do it. It's hard. There's no question about it. Um, and there's a, a, a lot of things we still need to learn. But one of the things that we use the space station for is trying to understand and then mitigate risks um, for going to Mars. So part of that, that is on the human health and performance side. So um, trying to understand more about radiation, you know, isolation, um, how you would do medical care when you can't just bring people back to Earth. 
um, the gravity environment and what it does to the human body and you know how you keep the air and water clean. So we do have regenerative life support system on station. It's not to the extent that we need for Mars, but it still will take um, a concerted effort and, a, and really the, the political will over many years, which is a, a difficult thing <laughs> to get in our country, is to stay on the same path um, for many years to, to make that happen. But I don't think there's any, anything insurmountable about actually getting humans to Mars. What's the most surprising thing? You spend 10 days in a very small space uh -huh. with, a, with a group of people. What, what would, no one, if, you're, if you've never been up there, what would surprise you about that experience? Well, let's see, one of the most fun things was balancing my 200-pound crewmate on the end of my finger. I was like, okay, I can't do that on Earth. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the two main things about being um, in orbit around the Earth are, number one, the views of Earth, which are just amazing, and then number two, being in a microgravity environment. So you're floating, everything you're dealing with is floating, and so you just have to figure out how to operate in that environment, which is quite different. And then, of course, you know, you're going around the Earth 16 times a day, so you have a sunrise or a sunset every 45 minutes. And so you just have to, you know, it's just a very different place to operate, but, but that's what makes it fun. Worst thing about being in space? Uh, you have to be very careful when you use the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very methodical. <laughs> That's what I tell my kids. <laughs> yes. It's kind of, yeah. Kind of like Learning all over again. <laughs> um, favorite musician? Well, you know, I'm a classical flutist, so um, when I was in high school and college, probably the most famous flutist in the world was Jean-Pierre Rampal, and, and so going to see him in person was kind of a highlight. <laughs> favorite song to play? It's always whatever I'm working on currently. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't talked about this, but you're a private pilot. Uh, what's your favorite place to fly to? Well, I have so I haven't flown privately in a long time. But while I was at NASA, um, I did get to fly in the T thirty eight jet aircraft. So it's a two seater version of an F five. So um, as a mission specialist, I didn't I wasn't allowed to take off or land because I'm not a professional pilot. But we were allowed to take the stick once we were two hundred feet off the ground. So I have about 800 hours in a T-38. So our favorite place to fly, of course, was down to the Cape because um, usually that meant you were going to do some testing that was associated with your flight or you were actually going down for lunch. That's awesome. Um, best advice you've ever received? Oh, I don't know. I've, I've gotten lots of good pieces of advice. One of the things um, as a leader that... Um, I do is sometimes I have book clubs with some of the employees at Johnson Space Center, and, and one of the books that I would um, often use was The Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Leader. And I think when you read that, there's usually one or two that really speak to you, probably just based on you know whatever um, challenges you're facing. And so the one I talk about a lot, and this was based on, I became a manager at Johnson Space Center, and about six weeks later is when we lost uh, Columbia. And so, and, and I was at that time the deputy director of the organization that managed the crew office. So um, a very difficult time um, to become a manager. And one of the things that um, as a leadership team we had to do over the next couple years was figure out what kind of things, what, we had to understand what caused the accident and then what changes were gonna be required before we would let people fly on the shuttle again. And, and it was just difficult because people, there was a whole range of ideas. 
And so I was the crew representative to the board that would make the decisions about that. And so the thing that spoke to me from that book was one of the habits is seek first to understand and then to be understood. So I, I initially thought my role was to go in and state, here's the crew position on this particular decision. Um, but I realized really a big part of my role was to go in and listen to what everybody else had to say. There was a lot of other smart people in that room, and if they were thinking differently than what our crew office was thinking, I needed to figure out. I needed to hear what they had to say and to understand that and to see if that made a difference to our, to our own um, view on that particular topic. Well, thank you for, yeah. for being here. This was fantastic. We, I think we all learned a lot. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on September 27th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.